Go ahead and make your way to your seats. We'll begin together um, singing the Lord's Prayer. welcomes you. We'll enjoy his hospitality and his generosity this morning together. Thanks. Everybody, how's it going? Good. Good to see everyone. Yeah, excited to be here. Excited to get an opportunity to worship together. In a few minutes, uh, we're going to get an opportunity to not just worship through, um, through song and through scriptures and get to eat and enjoy um, really just the goodness of the Lord through the word of the Lord, but we're also going to get to eat together. And so uh, if you're new with us or newer to Christ City, like you'll, you'll notice um, right over here, there's a bunch of tables set up. And while that might seem abnormal for, um, for this setting, um, eating a meal together is kind of a regular part of our life. And so this next month, uh, we're actually going to be eating together every Sunday after the gathering. So, so just come prepared to enjoy a meal. Today we'll have a box lunch from Jason's Deli. Um, because of some people who have some good recommendations, we'll have other things in the future weeks. But we should have enough food for everybody, so please enjoy. Um, and we'll talk about a little bit in just a few minutes of why uh, that's so important to be people who eat together in the name of Jesus. And so, um, so that's what we have coming up uh, over the next few moments. As always, just as a reminder of why we're here and what we're doing here, um, our desire today is to be, um, not to come to church, but to be the church as we encourage one another to, um, to open our minds, attentions, and set our hearts' affections upon Jesus so that as the church we might leave this place and share meals and share life, um, that we might leave this place and follow Jesus in our ordinary roles and relationships as employees, employers, husbands, wives, roommates, friends, uh, children, parents, um, and might glorify Jesus in that, but also might get to know the goodness of God uh, in those really ordinary ways in which Jesus makes himself real to us. And so uh, as we kind of understand that today, uh, my prayer, our prayer is that uh, over the next few moments, um, before we open up our table to one another, that our hearts and minds would be open to Jesus together. Um, and so before we enter into it, um, let's just take a second to just kind of quiet ourselves, to enter into this space, this kind of abnormal space, right? This time where we kind of step out of our normal rhythms and roles into a space where we can set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus, so we might enter back into the normal spaces as followers of Jesus, as ones who are worshipers, ones who are enjoyers of God, and ones who are proclaimers of the excellencies of the one who calls us out of darkness into light. So we pray with me. Father, we thank you for um, your grace and mercy to us that's new and sufficient. We thank you for an opportunity, um, Lord, today to worship you, um, Lord, to proclaim the word of Jesus, to hear it, to sing it, to sit under it, 
to, um, Lord, as uh, the angel says in Revelation, to digest it, to eat on it, to, um, Lord, um, hunger and thirst after, uh, Lord, this right way that is the way of Jesus. And so help us today to, uh, Lord, be fully present to your spirit with us. Help us today as we, um, Lord, are together, um, not just ones who are alone in our walk with the Lord, but, Lord, who are together following Jesus to be ones who are brought together through um, through the meal that is Jesus, through his body and through his blood. And so today we just ask, Lord, for your spirit to be among us, for us to be, um, Lord, whatever we have in the week past and in the week ahead, to be able to be here and to be with you and to be with one another in you. All this we pray, uh, Lord, with, um, with hope, with excitement, uh, Lord, because we know this is your desire for us, to dine with you um, in your presence. And so um, we pray these things with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. To help us enter into this kind of time of worship, we've asked Cohen to come and read a psalm for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, in presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks, Cohen. You're welcome to stand. We're going to begin together in song this morning, singing the goodness and the mercy of our Lord. to you when the night is falling, when my sin is calling, when I can't see straight and the smoke's in my eyes, and I will wait for you when the future's blurry, amidst the rush and hurry, when the pain is real and the questions arise, cause there's no limit to your love, no bottom to your ocean. No top to your mountain, no end to your sky. There's no limit to your love, no bottom to your ocean. No top to your mountain, no end to your sky. There's no limit to your love. Turn and walk in a new direction Remove this infection Yeah, this need to own and get what's mine Ask for wisdom when I'm lost Nail my motives to the cross And find my peace in the promises you've made Cause 
continue together in song. Won't find me again 
again No, there's nothing Better than you You turn morning to dancing You give beauty for ashes You turn shame into glory You're the only one who cares You turn morning to dancing you give beauty for ashes You turn shame into glory You're the only one who cares You turn graves into gardens You turn bones into armies you turn seas into highways You're the only one who can You're the only one who can Oh, there's nothing better than you Lord, there's nothing better than you Lord, there's nothing Father, we thank you for a morning to be together, to dine at your table, to find welcome, to find companionship, friendship, fellowship, communion with you. Lord, may we receive it and extend it to others. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, this is from Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angels said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thanks, Allie. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke. Um, we'll kind of jump around in Luke a little bit this morning, um, but Luke 7 is where we'll be uh, to kind of kick things off. Um, and, Chaz, we mind giving this to Amber? I forgot to give it to her a minute ago. I might help her. <laughs> awesome. So, um, again, for those maybe new to Christ City, or just as a reminder for those who are part of it, like rhythmically, the way our kind of faith family cycle works is... Um, we kind of rotate in these seasons of where we take a scripture, a book of the Bible, um, a section of scripture, a theme in scriptures, and we kind of dive down into it in this kind of setting in order to help us kind of um, understand it in a way that we can live it out to, to make it to where it's chewable, digestible, so that it can therefore become, as the psalmist says, something that as we meditate on it can be livable, um, can be produced in our lives um, as a way to keep us on this path of following Jesus. And then after these kind of seasons, we kind of pop out into maybe what's more practical um, um, uh, practices or habits um, of what it looks like to follow Jesus together. Um, so we kind of have this season where we, um, we orient our, um, our question in this setting around what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be with Jesus, to um, become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did? Again, for the purpose of not just leaving it here, but to kind of set us and ground us, help us, encourage us to practice that in life together. And so in these settings, we try to do the thing that we're setting our attention on. Um, everything that we do in this setting is meant to allow us to be able to do the same thing outside of this setting, right? Um, and for, again, if you're part of Christ City, that's the, you know that, that's normal. Um, but as, as a reminder, like when we talk about these things, about, um, about following Jesus, it's not a theoretical thing. It's a really normal thing, a really everyday thing. And so what we're inviting each other to do, what we're encouraging one another to do, is to look at the life of Jesus and see what it looks like to be ones who actually live this out. And so, so as much as today is going to be kind of informational as we kind of begin this next month of looking at a practice, a habit, a ritual together that helps us do what Jesus did. The idea is not for it to land here. The idea is for it to start here, to meditate upon it, so that as we meditate on it, we can like, practice it together. Make sense? Just want to set the ground rules so we understand where we're at. And so, so this month, um, again, we're going to be eating a lot together. And so, but that may, that may not seem abnormal to you. That may seem normal. Um, but the question is why? Why are we going to eat together? And so let me, before we get to answer that question, uh, let me ask you another question. Um, what was Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself in the Gospels? Anybody know? Well, how, who did, who did Jesus refer, how did Jesus refer to himself most often? Oh, I heard somebody say it. A couple people said it. Son of man. All right. Man, you guys are good. You're too good. If, if I were in your, in, your, in your shoes, I would have probably said Christ or Messiah, or Son of God, maybe. Like, those are kind of the typical ways we refer to Jesus, right? 
Well, as, as some people would, they will get extra gold stars later um, mentioned, the name that Jesus uses to refer to himself most often is Son of Man. It's a designation that he uses some 80 times in the Gospels. But it's a designation that's actually quite odd. Um, in fact, while Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man almost 80 times, he's almost never referred to as the Son of Man. Um, it was a term that he used for himself, but that other people felt uncomfortable using to describe him, even his own disciples. And so, so while this is an um, odd term um, to call yourself the Son of Man, for Jesus to call himself the Son of Man, it's actually the most perfectly encapsulating term for the fullness of who Jesus actually is. Jesus is rather matter-of-factly a human. He is a man. He is the son of a human with flesh that bleeds, containing the entire gamut of emotions and entangled in a plethora of relationships with others in the earth. We cannot know Jesus apart from his humanity, right? We certainly cannot do what Jesus did if, we want, if he were not like us in some ways, right? If he was not human. And so his title reveals what is plain to the eyes, that he's a son of a human. He's a son of man. He's the son of, of the earth, right? But it, the title also reveals what our eyes have a hard time perceiving. For those paying attention, um, especially to the, in the first century Jewish context or those who know the scriptures, the title Son of Man would have cast Jesus' life, his entire life, his teaching, his healing, his exercising of demons, his wisdom, his manner and interactions with people, who he talked to, who he didn't talk to, how he talked to him, all those kind of things. It would have cast his entire life in a divine light. Not only was he human, but he was the human. The divine initiation and consummation of all that it means to be human. For it was one like the Son of Man that Daniel saw all those years ago when God's people, this microcosm of humanity, were in exile, far from home, under the rule of powers and forces beyond themselves, and in desperate need of hope. The same kind of people that Peter said over the last couple months that we've looked at said that we are. People in exile far from home, under the rule and powers of forces beyond ourselves and desperate for hope. It was one like the Son of Man who could come and bring all things back into alignment with the wisdom of God's good creation, freeing humanity under his forever reign. That's what the Son of Man was. This is how Daniel described him in Daniel chapter 7. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. He came to God, the Father. He came to the wisdom of, of creation. He came to the one who formed and knows everything's beginnings and ends and was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve, should pay reverence to, should minister to him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is, the, this is the one that Jesus says that he is. As he's human, he's also this one who is the one who sets the limitations and boundaries for humanity, who sets the domain and kingdom of God's wisdom within humanity. Every time Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, he was invoking the image of a divine, a heavenly being who sets the boundaries, the means, and the manners for humanity as human whose life was more than could be seen, but not less. He whose very way of life was the way to life. The embodiment of complete, whole, happy, and forever life in the divine wisdom of the Ancient of Days. So, when Jesus came proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, 
as he did to kick off Mark's gospel. This is how he starts Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel, the good news that God is here and God is with you. Jesus was not merely, when he said these things, was not merely making a spiritual metaphor, representing a physical reality in and through his life. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's not merely presenting a spiritual metaphor. He's saying in physical reality, it's here. The everlasting dominion, the indestructible kingdom, was neither merely spiritual and future, but also present and material through the means and manners of Jesus' daily activities. I mean, think about that for a second. How amazing that is. In the way in which Jesus lived, in the very life of Jesus, the dominion and kingdom that shall never end, the Son of Man to bring into the Ancient of Days, to bring to a people in exile, on, on a long journey home, far away from it, under powers that they had, didn't have control over, in desperate need of hope, arrives. It's here. The rule and reign of Jesus, the kingdom of God, material and present, is a powerful truth. It appears that in his self-reference reference of Son of Man, Jesus wanted his apprentices to have more than an internal or mental, emotional, spiritual peace of this reality, but also an external, physical embodiment of peace amid chaos, tribulation, and brokenness. And isn't that refreshing? <laughs> to know that God doesn't just want us to have an internal peace, a spiritual peace of his rule and reign, but a way to live in the reality of his peace, to embody it in a way of life. I mean, I think we'd all agree that that's a good thing, right? That we want that, that we long for that. That's at least for those in Christ City, like that's what's drawn us together. In Jesus' living, the Son of Man established the way of life with God and others, the boundaries and expectations of humanness. And so, if that's true, if Jesus, again, referring to himself over 80 times as the Son of Man, is the one who comes in to establish this kingdom under the wisdom of God, as one who is fully human and fully divine, to set the boundaries of what life is meant to be in the kingdom, to physically be the kingdom of God that will never be destroyed, will last forever. Why did he choose the style that he did? Why did he do the things that he did? Why did he live the way that he did? How did he live? That's a question that we get to ask as apprentices of Jesus. That's what he invites us to know. A friend and author, uh, Tim Chester, once asked, how would you complete the sentence, the Son of Man came? If somebody were to ask you, um, just randomly, and if you know the answer, don't shout it out because we want to we try to build into it, right? Um, all you, you smart people with your, um, your extra stars. Um, how would you answer the Son of Man came? What would you say the Son of Man came to do? Um, would you answer that he came to preach the gospel? Would you answer that he came to teach about the kingdom of God? Would you answer that he came to heal or to show God's rule over evil or even to die on the cross? I mean, if you answered that, those are all true things, right? Those are all things that Jesus did and for which we are eternally grateful. But if we dig a little deeper, maybe this is kind of helpful for us. When we think about it, again, as apprentices of Jesus, maybe we should ask, what should we go and do? When we think about, about our life, if Jesus is this epitome of humanity, if he is the, 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 the human of humans, what of it should we do? Should we, what should we go and do? Should we go and preach on street corners? Should we go take advantage of social media to share the gospel? Should we campaign for what we think are righteous political ideologies? Shall we work for transformation in our community? Shall we adopt a culture um, 
that ministers to it? Uh, should, we, um, should we attend church? What, what all should we do? I mean, I, I, if I'm you, I would imagine that you could list out a, a hundred things to do, right? Well, fortunately for us, Jesus doesn't let us wander off in our imagination of what he was up to, and that's what we should be up to as his apprentices for too long. Because Jesus loves us, he doesn't leave it to us to figure out what he did and therefore what we should be doing. In fact, he actually answers the question, the Son of Man came three different times in our, in our Gospels. And each description gives us, peels back for us, a bit of the onion of our ideas about God and what it means to be human in relation to God. In other words, what God is up to and what we are meant to be up to in our life of following Jesus. Um, the, uh, the first is in Mark's Gospel. And it says, the Son of Man came... Not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, as one's 2,000 years removed, like this may not sound strange for us, but let's pretend for just a half a second that we're the ones listening to Jesus describe himself this way. And it's odd that he's describing himself as the Son of Man. Again, we've said it. He describes himself 80 times. Almost nobody ever calls him the Son of Man. So there's something odd about what Jesus is saying, right? And the people would have felt the oddness to it. And here's why they would have felt the oddness to it. Right away, we notice a discrepancy between Daniel's vision and Jesus' descriptor. Remember that Daniel said that all peoples are meant to serve, to pay reverence to, to minister to the Son of Man. But Jesus is saying that he didn't appear for such a purpose. But rather, he came to serve all peoples. The one like the Son of Man in all his glory and dominion is others-oriented, in other words. That, that he is one who comes for the sake of other people, that he is one who comes for the sake of the Father, that he is the one who comes with this mentality to serve. He is the one paying reverence to people within his kingdom, ministering to them rather than they ministering to him. And he is doing so not by offering random acts of kindness, but while he served other people's needs in so many ways, Jesus said the Son of Man came declaring at a cost, claiming at a cost those being held in bondage. They didn't just come to serve in some random acts of kindness. Again, we'll see in Jesus' life that he was kind in so many ways, right? He did so many things to help people in the immediate moment, which he does for us too. But when he describes what it is he's come to do, what it is his life really is about, it is about claiming at a cost those being held in bondage. His purpose was to free God's people, which every Jew listening would have expected, right? After all, this is the hope of the Son of Man's arrival in Daniel. But what would have sounded strange, what would have been unexpected, was that the Son of Man would have to pay the price to free them. That, that, he would, that his way of freeing them would be serving them by paying the price, giving up his life for them. Because listen, think about it. I mean, just logically, right? Especially as we read the Old Testament, as we even think the way we think about God. God is mighty, right? He's bigger and stronger than all sorts of evil and wickedness. Therefore, he takes what he wants, right? That's, what we, that's how we think. I mean, God's mighty and bigger. He can take what he wants, including vengeance on his enemies, including vengeance on his enemies. Exacting retribution would be expected of the Son of Man, especially coming out of Daniel, right? Especially in the midst of of people in exile under the rule of these powers and authorities that were clearly evil and wicked to the Jewish mind. Surely this is the the way the Son of Man would come. He would come, yes, to free, but to free through this mighty act of vengeance retribution, bringing out his people out of underneath tyranny. But laying down his life to the enemy seems strange, would be odd. 
is not the vision we get of the Son of Man in Daniel. Or at least the Jews originally got of him anyway. The Son of Man's concern was not honor or worship. Ironically, both are rightly his and forever his. They're just not his aim. Right? He knows honor and worship is his, so he doesn't need to seek it. That's why he, he didn't come to be, to, to be served because he knew the honor and worship was his. He knew he was. So he didn't have to aim for it. Nor was he focused on showing his might or enacting vengeance. But ironically, both are exercised through his death and resurrection, right? His might and his overcoming the enemy, as we talked about last week at the end of 2 Peter, is that the time of judgment is at hand is now. When does Jesus say that? Right before he goes to the cross. That his might and his vengeance, that the enemy of this world is overcome at his death, at his life being given. The power of Jesus' sacrificial, submissive service threw most people for a loop then and does so still today. But this next scripture will kind of help us clear things up a little bit. So Jesus came to free us, to redeem us through the sacrificial life. But then he also says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So he came not only to, to not be served, but to serve, to give his life for a ransom for many, but also to seek and to save the lost. Again, the religious minds would get tied into knots on this one, especially in the first century. The Jews in Jesus' day knew the stories of why God's people were in exile, how they had lost their way, how they decided to live another way, or how they rejected the purposes of for God themselves. They, they knew why the exile happened. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't just some random act of events. It was the way that they had chosen to respond to God and the consequences of the, the choice. And think about it. Isn't religion based on the premise that there are those on the right path, the correct road, the righteous way, and those on the wrong road? Isn't that kind of the, the pre-existing um, idea in religion that, that those in the religion have the right path and those outside of the religion are off the right path? And that the role of religion tells people that they're off track and gets them back on it, right? Like, that's, that's what it's there for, right? That's, that's why the Pharisees existed and were trying to live the way that they were living, was to show both the people of God and the surrounding community, not just what the right road was, but what the wrong road was. And, and, and so in one sense, the Son of Man calling people to righteousness makes complete sense. But again, the issue is not what he's doing in the sense of calling them to righteousness, but the manner in which he does it. The Son of Man, by his very virtue, would push away uncleanliness, unrighteousness, unholiness. Right? He's the Son of Man. He's divine. He's the one in the presence of the Ancient of Days. So in a Jewish mind, this meant the exclusion of all that was unholy, the exclusion of all that was unclean, a separateness that would, that would keep things away from it. He would, like a good divine, set boundaries, a dominion, which would keep the bad things and people out and the good things and people in, right? That's what, that was the idea, right? That's the whole idea of the new kingdom and the new dominion, right? At least for the Jewish people who were longing for God to return and do this. Yet Jesus says that his virtue actually compels him to search out and draw in those who are off the beaten path of life with God. It wasn't, an ex a, a, um, it wasn't a kingdom that set the boundaries of if you come up to it, you can't get into it. It was a kingdom in which the Son of Man went out and grabbed people and drew them into it. While this sounds noble to our ears, it would sound weak and inferior to first century years. Again, we're 2,000 years removed. Like, we think there's a nobility in this, this humble 
leader going out from his kingdom to grab the lost, the rebellious, the broken, the twisted, and bring them into wholeness. But this would have been the very opposite of what strength and nobility would have looked like in the first century. It was, it was a sign of weakness to go and to run to a son who had been discarded from the family. God not punishing or shaming people into repentance, not demanding cleanliness first, but seeking them out while in their rebellion, filth, and lostness would have seemed strange to the ears of the first century Jew. It shouldn't have. Not completely. I mean, that's what Jesus' whole life is demonstrating, right? He's telling the story of Israel in a way that allows him to see that this is what God's been up to the whole time. But nevertheless, it would have felt weird that God wasn't pushing or shaming people into repentance or demanding cleanliness first, but seeks them out in their rebellion. That God was going after them, patient because of them, laboring for them, longing and looking for them. That seemed a bit far-fetched. I think to some extent it seems a bit far-fetched for us too, if we're honest. That, that it seems a bit far-fetched for us and for our neighbors that God comes after us. That God is patient for us. That God labors for us. That God longs and looks for us to draw us in. So far, Jesus' description of why the Son of Man, the human of all humans, has come, um, and has revealed that he is after freedom and restoration through this proactive seeking and service and sacrifices, going after and drawing in, each of which assumes a deep affection, a foreness, a love. Love is why the Son of Man came, and freedom and restoration are what his forever dominion, glory, and kingdom bring into existence. That's what the life of Jesus demonstrates. That's what the life of Jesus makes possible. But we still have one final descriptor. And like the first two, the last pills back another layer of what we think God is up to. Or better, how we believe God is going about his excellent work of freeing and restoring our God-image humanity. Jesus says in Luke's gospel, one last time, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. <laughs> Did you expect that one? No, right? Okay, he came to seek and to save the lost, to give himself for many, like... Like, that's awesome, but eating and drinking, that description sounds funny even to us, right? Like, it's okay, we admit it, it sounds a little weird. It, that's, even 2,000 years removed, again, we, we get, or at least, we, we, at least are familiarized with Jesus coming to serve, um, to give his life that others might live. And while it may have sounded strange to a first century Jew, um, it doesn't seem so far-fetched to us. Um, that Jesus came to search out and draw in those who are far off the beaten path um, to give us and share with us life with God. We're grateful for that. We actually hear that and, and, and can worship and not just be confused. But Jesus coming to eat and drink, that seems out of place even for us. And again, we wouldn't be the only ones who thought so. Um, remember, while Jesus constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man, no one else did. And so perhaps it's because his way of being human and divine was so different than the standard expectation or any expectation for that matter. Maybe his way of what it, what it meant to be divine and human together, maybe his understanding of what life in the kingdom looked like and how it went about was so different than what was standardly accepted, maybe any ex ex um, expectation that nobody could muster up the courage and conviction to call him the Son of Man, right? 
the way Jesus embodied his humanity and his divinity was, well, puzzling. <laughs> puzzling to most folks. And I imagine it's still for many of us today if we're honest, right? Even those of us who are committed to this life with Jesus, we read the stories of Jesus, see how he lives, and sometimes we're puzzled and confused. How do, what does that mean for us? How do we follow in his footsteps in that? Why did he speak this way and do these things? Well, Luke 7.33 and the rest of verse uh, um, 34 shed some light on what people really thought when they observed how Jesus lived his life. So if you have your Bibles, Luke 7.33 and 34, read these together. The embodiment, how Jesus embodied his kingdom, we'll kind of get a little bit of, of light shed on, on uh, what the, the people listening to Jesus thought. Commenting on the fact that many religious leaders had rejected not just Jesus' embodiment of God's kingdom's arrival, but similarly dismissed the guy who had come to prepare the way um, in this God with us life, Jesus says these words. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. Let's stop there for just a second. So they rejected John the Baptist, this forerunner of Jesus, who's to prepare the way for the Son of Man to come in, for his kingdom to be present, for his domain to, to be established forever and ever. They rejected it, and they rejected it um, even though he came not eating bread, not drinking wine. So in other words, he came as a stereotypical, pious, boring, religious person to some degree, right? He was, he was overly virtuous. He had gone above and beyond. I mean, probably as a part of the Essenes, a group who had considered themselves um, um, separate from the world and so distinct in every way in which they lived that they lived a part of outside of the community, and so there's like a level of rigor that's not even close to what would be accepted as like just for the normal person. So like even the most rigorous Pharisee would have been considered liberal by the Essene, like by John, the group that John the Baptist came from, right? So he came with this overly rigorous, like completely committed mentality, right? He, he ate no bread, he drank no wine, and then you say he has a demon, <laughs> right? In other words, he fit your image, of what a religious person connected with God looked like to some degree. But he went even further in his rigor than you, so he challenged what you were willing to do, so therefore he must be from the devil. Right? I mean, let's be honest. How many of us have met the Christian that makes us, that makes us want to say that, but not, not actually say that? Like, your life is so over the top, it can't, be, it can't really be the God life, Right? Like, and Jesus is like, so, so, so if, if that's the way you look at it, again, you're comparing it to your life. Like, if, if that happens for us, this has happened to the Pharisees, fine. You reject that. You reject this over-the-top kind of life. And again, John the Baptist, there's no man great, born of women greater, right? Um, like, Jesus honored this man, right? While the Pharisees dismissed him, like, while we tend to kind of laugh at some of the things I just said, like, there's, there's a reality that, like, his life prepared the way for Jesus, Right? But Jesus came into this life different than John the Baptist. John the Baptist isn't the model for our life. That doesn't mean he's wrong or bad, but he's not the model for our life. Jesus is. And Jesus' looked very different than, um, than John's life. And this is what he says in, as we keep going in verse 34. He says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Normal activities, often associated with joyous and favorable occasions and memories, right? Religious festivals, um, but not over, overly or overtly connected to the stereotypical religious scene, right? Like, we don't generally think, when we think of religion as eating and drinking. We think of religion as fasting, abstaining, being out in the woods, like, away from all these things, right? So John was a stereotype. Jesus confronted that stereotype to some degree. 
And this is what they say of Jesus. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, he's having too good of a time. He's not taking things seriously enough and with the wrong kind of people, traitors and the unclean on top of that. John was too religious, and Jesus wasn't religious enough. John was too typical of what you expected and went beyond it, and Jesus was so atypical that the only thing you can do is call him a glutton and a drunkard, an abuser of food and beverage, of the good and the ordinary. Neither passionate rigor nor ordinary joys were what the religious were looking for back then, and I expect the same is true for us today. And listen, we often miss out on what God is doing, his seeking, serving, submitting, sacrificing for freedom and restoration, his giving his life for the ransom for many, his seeking and saving the lost, when we don't recognize how he is doing it. Eating and drinking are how Jesus embodied life with God and others, true life, life whole and forever. That's why Jesus includes it in his list of what the Son of Man has come doing. Obviously, Jesus did other things, right? He healed people. He cast out demons. He taught. He preached. He worshiped. He rebuked wrong ideas about God and incongruent ways of living with others and all the other expected and essential religious activities. But perhaps most of all, he was known for his eating and drinking too much. Too much. After all, a glutton and a drunkard are not your ordinary eaters and drinkers. It wasn't just that he went around and he had three square meals a day. He went around, so often was he known, especially eating and drinking with outsiders, that that became the way he was known. In fact, so known for eating and drinking with Jesus that on several occasions his self-described activity was voiced as a complaint against he and his apprentices. Just said by example in Luke's Gospel. In Luke 5, it says this, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So it wasn't just Jesus at the table with tax collectors and sinners. His disciples were there with them. Those following him were there with them in these, in these places. And the religious grumbled at that. They complained about that. They thought it was a negative thing. And then listen to this. This is even more fun. Uh, and later in John chapter 5, it says, And they said to Jesus, the Pharisees did, they said, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. They're they're doing the expected religious things. That's what John did, right? He didn't eat um, bread. He didn't drink wine. He was out in the woods. They They don't eat, and they offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. So the ones who follow us. So we're we're close enough to that group of the ones that really get it. They're really religious. We're close enough, right? But yours eat and drink. We we do all the religious activities, but yours eat and drink. Yours don't. Yours are missing something. And then later in Luke, in Luke 15, it says, The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled again, saying, This man, Jesus, receives sinners, and he eats with them. He doesn't just receive sinners, talk to them, welcome them into his home, show hospitality. He actually dines with them, eats with them, shares life with them. And listen, while those who who thought they knew what God was up to and how to get in on it saw Jesus eating and drinking as only with those who were the outside of things, who were the unclean, the truth is Jesus ate with everybody. When you read the Gospels, Jesus ate with everybody. Certainly he ate with tax collectors and their friends. We'll look at some of those stories over this next month. But he also ate with religious leaders. In fact, more often than not, he was invited by religious leaders into their homes. Like he ate a lot with the Pharisees which happened to also be his accusers. 
He ate with the religious leaders and his enemies. He ate with large groups of ordinary people. He ate with close friends, including women, which would have been a big thing in that time and and day. Um, And of course, he ate with his apprentices, his disciples. One author notes that this proliferation of what Jesus did, especially in Luke's gospel, is, is particularly outstanding, and so much so that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a mill, at a mill, or coming from a mill. In 15 of the 24 chapters in Luke, Jesus is pictured as either eating or referencing food, which makes total sense because, as Chester so plainly points out, food matters, mills matter, and are full of significance. And here's why they're significant. Carolyn still, I think, says it best. She, She argues that shared meals matter because few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom you share a meal is likely to be a friend or listen to this well on their way to becoming one. And isn't that the good news of the kingdom? That God is with us, that God is for us, that God has invited us into life with him, to companionship with him and with others. Listen, we spent the whole end of May and most of June parsing out this vision of companionship with Jesus and others along the journey we call faith. One, we reference the spiritual friendship, often referencing the spiritual friendship, being individuals who help each other listen and respond to our Father, to get in all that God is doing in and through each other is what life together in Jesus is actually all about. And what we discover throughout the Gospels is the most ordinary way in which Jesus did evangelism and discipleship, if you want to put stereotypical terms on them, where he embodied the good news that God is with us, God is for us, is through the shared meal. Mills with friends and those on their way to becoming friends, but listen to this, even those who rejected the friendship. Jesus ate mills with friends, with those well on their way to becoming friends, and those who would ultimately be the ones who orchestrated his death. Jesus shared mills with those close to him, those far from God, those who wanted him for something, and those who simply wanted to be with him. Jesus ate with women and with men, with tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees, religious leaders, disciples, the marginalized and the mainstream. And in so doing, Jesus embodied the kingdom of God and gave us a glimpse of a new world, a new dominion, a new way to be human at any and every table. Forgive me for referencing Chester so much, but, um, but Deidre and I got to, to work with him in England. I got to spend time with him. And so when he writes about these things, we've seen it in his life. I've actually had lots of meals with him at his house. And so, um, so like when we observe, like when he's talking about meals with Jesus and things like that, and if you've been around Christ City, we've, we've referenced some of him before. But he says this. He says, I don't want to reduce church and mission. That is, mission being the idea of being in on what God is doing to meals. I don't, he doesn't want to reduce church and mission to that. But he does want to, and I would agree that we want to argue that mills should be an integral and significant part of our shared life. They represent the meaning of mission. They represent the meaning of what we are to do, serving to free and restore and searching out after the lost, to to invite into companionship with God and one another this life after Jesus. But more than represent it, the shared meal embodies and enacts the very thing that we're after. The shared meal actually embodies and acts the very thing that we're after. And that's, that's a little bit different for us, right? We get the idea of like a meal being a reflection. But what Jesus demonstrates is the meal is the kingdom. This is it. You're in on it. You're a part of it at the meal. How incredible is that? 
it's not just this future spiritual metaphorical thing. It's this embodied companionship with God and others in this intimate action of eating together. The meals of Jesus are a window into his message of grace and the way his message and ministry define his community and its purpose. If we really want to do what Jesus did, and I think we do, we can't overlook or undervalue how the Son of Man, the human of all humans, embodied his kingdom. Through shared meals with all kinds, friends, strangers, family, and enemies, we too embody, we experience and shine light on the rule and reign of Jesus. Pretty cool that Jesus used something so ordinary to make observable, physical, something so extraordinary. Right? Jesus could have done anything to embody the kingdom. But he chose this thing which we can all do. Which we can all welcome people into our home. We can all be welcomed into other homes. Then we can, in so doing, in sharing a meal together, participate in God with us and God for us. In case you think I'm making too big of a deal out of shared meals, out of this hospitality as the embodiment of the kingdom, or that perhaps that's such an ordinary exercise is not quite what God is after in our life, uh, faith and mission. Let's consider, um, um, as we conclude our time this morning, Jesus' final meal before the Son of Man physically gave his life as a ransom for many. Um, there's this formative scene at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in Luke 22. You can turn there if you want. Moments before Jesus would be unlawfully arrested, unfairly tried, abusively beaten, and inhumanly killed, a story we all know, right? Of course, as is often the case, Jesus' friends and disciples were unaware of the significance of what was taking place over this last shared meal, right? They're missing it, most of the conversation, they're missing out and missing it, and it's not until retrospectively that they get it. So as I'm sure was common at similar dinner tables throughout their three years together, the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Perhaps in this particular instance, it was a way of making sure everyone knew that they weren't the ones who were going to betray betray Jesus, as Jesus had already said would happen. Each apprentice was jockeying for position, arguing why their life of faith was best, the most honorable, noble, and righteous. I mean, you you can imagine it, right? Um, We've all been around tables in our Christian settings where we we maybe not so... um, Maybe not so straightforwardly, uh, maybe, not, maybe just self-justifying is not so brazen, um, but, in, but there is a lot of conversations of that declare our own thoughts in our hearts. But uh, rather, um, in our conversations around the table with one another, sometimes um, we use acceptable means of self-measurement, um, recounting good deeds, right ideas, past accomplishments, and all those things that kind of, kind of justify that we got it, we've got it figured out. We know what we're doing in the kingdom right? I mean, you can imagine that. I'm sure you've experienced that in, in church. As, as a pastor, um, we lead a little group of pastors uh, every couple, every month or so that sit around a table, and we actually have to make sure that we don't get into those kind of conversations, right? Um, we actually have to do the work of not leading into that, because this is what we do. We have a vision of the kingdom that, that is beyond the mill, that is outside of this. And so we eat this meal together, we share this time together, and we think, okay, now let's go and do. And listen, we've already got in on it. We know what to do. We know where we're at. To their all-too-common conception that ministry was after the meal, Jesus so gently and directly corrected the vision of life with God and one another. And this is what he says. He says, the kings of Gentiles, in verse, verse 25 of Luke 22, and we're going to conclude with this. 
The kings of the Gentiles exercise the lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. That is, they're called doers of good. That is what they envisioned, right? Like, if they're jockeying for position in the kingdom, they're wanting to lead within the kingdom, they're wanting to, their idea of, of what it looks like to participate fully in what Jesus is doing and what God is doing uh, is establishing the kingdom by the means of, of bringing about good in the world. He's like, listen, that's what the kings of the earth do it. This is how the authority in the visible world does it. But then he says this, but not so with you. He says the rulers and authorities exercise, exercise um, authority. The rulers of the, of the Gentiles exercise authority over them, and they're called benefactors by using your authority. But Jesus says, not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, literally as something or someone new. And the leader as one who serves, as the leader as one who ministers to, as the Son of Man did. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Jesus admits, by every standard, it's not the one who serves that's the, the greatest. But then he says this, but I am among you as the one who serves. Listen, he knows our way of thinking of what it looks like to participate in the kingdom of God, to do what Jesus did is going to look like the way of the world. We're going to think that what we do is we go and we lead and we exercise our authority. We sit at the highest table. We have others serve us. We do these good works, and that's what it is. But Jesus says, no, I did it differently. I was among you as the one who serves, as the Son of Man. He goes on, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. In other words, you've proven your faith. You've demonstrated your heart, your affections. Ironically, they'll abandon him shortly. They stuck with him so far. They'll abandon him in just a few minutes. But still, he says, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. When did the father assign to him a kingdom? As the son of man, in Daniel 7, right? That's what Jesus is referencing. When does the father assign the son the kingdom? In Daniel chapter 7. I assign you what the father assigned me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus lived his life the way he did so his friends could eat and drink with him at his father's table. And in so doing, show what the human life, life with God and God with us truly is. It's the same offer. I mean, this is incredible. It's the same offer Jesus, dead and alive forever, extends to the churches in Revelation 3. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus, standing at the door and knocking, waiting to share a meal and life so that we might experience the fullness of our humanity in his domain, his glory, his kingdom. Do our meals look like that? In what ways are our meals the embodiment of God with us, God for us, and for them, friends, neighbors, friends, strangers, enemies? Over the next several Sundays, we're going to let the stories of Jesus' meals shape and define our community and our purpose. So for the rest of August, every day, every Sunday, we'll come together, we'll tell a story, uh, the story of, of a meal with Jesus. We'll have some questions that help us kind of jump into it, meditate on it, work through it, let it sink down into our hearts and lives, chew on it and digest it, and then we'll eat together. That's what this month's going to look like for us as we try to set a rhythm 
together, practicing, relearning how we can embody the kingdom of God at the table. Because let's be honest, the last year and a half, we haven't got to eat a lot together. In some ways, maybe we need to relearn how to eat together. So that we might be ones in the ordinary things of life, embody the kingdom of God. Experiencing God with us ourselves, but also inviting others to experience what it is that we get to share. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. That the Son of Man, the one who you sent to draw us out of exile, to bring us home, to walk with us along the journey to home, to overcome the powers that are outside of our control, to give us a living hope, came, yes, to serve, to free us. Yes, came after us, even though we were outside of your kingdom, to draw us in, but did so in a way that we can all participate, eating and drinking. Father, I just pray in your spirit that ideas would not stay at ideas, but the truth of the life of Jesus would sink into our hearts and out through our life together. That together we might embody life with you and shine light to our neighbors, our friends, even our enemies. The good news that you are here. All this we pray with hope and confidence in Jesus alive. Amen. You're welcome to stand. We're going to close together in song. This song will be a prayer for us. So I invite you to sing and pray with me. Stir in me love that's deep, love that's wide, love that's sweet. Help me, Lord, to never keep it to myself. If my heart should dimly burn, if my feet should fail to run, call my name and I will come right back to you.
wanna stay close to you It's really that simple Wanna stay close to you It's as simple as this song Wanna stay close to you It's really that simple Wanna stay close to you My whole life Come to the feast, come 
you to read with me the yellow portion and then we'll have some instructions for our meal together uh, after we close read with me gracious and hospitable father strengthen us in the power of the holy spirit as those who have a seat at your table help us to love you with all our heart soul and mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves help us in the week ahead as those who have been welcomed to welcome the stranger, as those who have been fed to feed the hungry, as those who have been set free to sit with those in prison, as those who have been healed to touch the afflicted, and as those who have been found to join you in seeking and saving the lost. As those who have received, help us give generously, and as those who have heard, Help us proclaim the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, in about five minutes, we'll open up the tables back there. We've got all kinds of food. I'll come back up in a minute and announce that. So right now, um, if you have kids, go grab your kids so the volunteers that are back there can come join us. If you don't have kids or hang out in this room, there's beverages right there at the back. Grab a beverage, hang out. In just a few minutes, we'll start We'll open up the meal together, okay? Sound good? All right. Thanks.